Hey, Tom. I'm heading to Walmart, because you know what season it is. Oh, is it pumpkin spice season? Uh, no, it's flu season, and Walmart gives flu shots. Yes, flu season is here, and we've got your back. With flu shots where you already shop, our expert pharmacy team administers each flu shot and can answer your vaccine questions. Stay safe this flu season. Stop by your local Walmart pharmacy and get your flu shot today. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. On June 12, 1995, Jalil Campo told her mom she was headed to a friend's house nearby her home on Debussy Street in the northwest area of Laval. It was a late afternoon, a Monday. The nine-year-old girl's regular path to her friend's house involved crossing through a wooded area behind her home. Her body was discovered four days later, submerged in a creek in the wooded area. Whoever killed her had masturbated on her. A coroner determined she died of asphyxiation caused by drowning and declared her death a homicide. This is Who Killed Teresa, and by now I'm telling you a familiar tale. Uh, we uh, have reached the end of our our series, Huit Meurtres Non Résolus Dans La Région. This is a La Presse article from de- December 11th, 1999, and we began this journey with the 1987 uh, disappearance of Lynette Gibb. And now we conclude with the 1995 um, disappearance and murder of nine-year-old uh, Jalil Campo. And 
I will be brief in summarizing the history because uh, it's all too familiar, as I said, and, and then we'll we'll get to some probably more interesting things about this case. Uh, Jalil, so she's our she's our youngest victim, right? Nine. By some account, she's ten, but um, I think most agree that she was nine years old, a little imp of a kid. If you see her photos, charming little girl. Um, and of course, uh, when she disappears. Uh, um, Immediately, you know, the police are being hopeful. Here's an article, uh, La police garde espoir de retrouver Jalil. So they have hope that she'll be found. But of course, her mother, Donna Senecal, uh, in the first things in this article by Jean-Paul Charbonneau says, I know she's dead. Mother's no best. So for four days, they're looking for her. Uh, the Saint-Hubert Barbecue Company offers a $25,000 or $25, reward because the father, Pierre Campo, works there. Bell Canada sets up like a phone line, a hotline for tips, etc. like this. And then in this article, we have something unique. So, uh, right, it's Laval. So the Laval police force at the disappearance and, uh, is the investigating force. And they say something in 1995 that I wish had been said uh, 20 years earlier. It says uh, in this article, it's the first time that police forces have assembled together. Nothing will be neglected. So Laval, Montreal and the Sarté de Québec are are all uh, circling the wagons and coming together. Uh, They specifically enlist the the Laval police enlist the 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 expertise of the Sarté de Québec um the specifically the investigators working on the Marie Chantal uh, Desjardins case which of course by now is is a year uh is a year old recall that by now uh Melanie Campe's uh, murder is a year old and still un- unsolved so um those two happening in 94 and now we're in 95 and it says uh, Laval police says we want their expertise and it goes on to mention not only uh, um that they believe possibly now a connection with the Marie Chantal case in the disappearance of Jalil and possibly they reference back to uh, Marie uh, uh, Rarivier case. So recall, they don't they don't mention Cabet because she's nineteen. But um, who they group together is the eleven year old Marie Eve, the ten year old Marie Chantal, and now the nine year old uh, Jalil. Um, and then they go on. The article ends. It says uh, police confirmed that uh, there has been a black car targeting adolescents uh, in the Terbonne area. I don't know why they're so focused on Terbonne, but we'll get to that later. Terbonne is not in Laval. It's uh, north of off the island of Laval to the, the east. And now, something interesting uh, goes on uh, in the wake of um, her body being, being found which we described at the beginning. So um, there's there's two articles that come out. The, the first comes out um, June 16th. And as I say, we're right around the anniversary of the, uh, the Cabet and the uh, Desjardins 
murders. And both mothers of Melanie Cabet and uh, Marie Chantal uh, come out in the press in support of uh, Jalil Campos' uh, mother, Donna Senecal. Um, and they say, um, we think, we believe there are a lot of sexual aggressors prominent in our streets. No, uh, no shit. Um, and this is interesting. So this article um, at the top has a banner. It's got, it's got the photos of Marie Chantal next to Melanie Cabet, next to Marie-Ève next to um, uh, Marie-Claude uh, Cote. That's the, I believe, um, <clears throat> the 17-year-old we talked about last week uh, disappears from an Outremont bar found in the St. Lawrence River. Next to her is Pascal Poulain. That's a case we haven't talked about, but Poulain, 10-year-old boy um, from the 1990s, that case um, usually gets grouped with a series of uh, young boy um sex murders um, from the 90s, 84, uh, profiled in the Stéphane Parent documentary, November uh, 1984. And next to Poulain is Valérie Delpay, the woman found in trash bags in the garbage dump. So we have that. June 30th, 95, we have another one of these um, articles, but this time the the banner at the top is Marie-Ève, Marie-Claude, Chantal Brochou, and then we add the cases of Wilton Lubin and Sébastien Metevier, again, from the 84 disappearances and, and murders. And, um, you know, to me, uh, what what's going on here? I mean, where have I seen this before? Well, I saw it in the summer 1977. There's the banner headline when Catherine Hawks disappears. And who are the photos that time? Uh, it's Camarin, uh, Jocelyn Hu, Joanne Darion, Helen Monast, and Catherine Hawks. So we just shuffle the deck and we put some more victims up there and there, and there you go. And, and as I say, uh, it's, 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 you know, it's the same thing we've experienced in the 70s, and it will be the same thing we experience in in the in the O's in the arts with uh, with uh, um, uh, Cedric Provencher and I'll say it again because I think it needs to be said again. So we have the police stating to us they are coming together like they've never come together before. Well, they should have done it 20 years uh, earlier, and apparently they eventually developed amnesia, because by the time we get to Cedrica, of course, uh, all the walls are up and no one is cooperating, and there's there's absolutely, there's not a, uh, a, um, a hard uh, search in the first 48. In fact, the Sarté de Québec can barely get their act together to finally say that it's a disappearance rather than, than a runaway. So you'd imagine, um, I imagine, well, I know the frustrations of these mothers at that time. I would imagine they were probably uh, uh, ignorant and unaware of the situation in the 70s. But I'm certain that, that when this happened again with Cedrica, um, uh, let alone the Godbu disappearance, which we haven't discussed, let alone the... Uh, the um, um, 
Marilyn Bergeron disappearance uh, that, that we haven't discussed. Um, it um, again, it is it, it, currently what's going on in the Certe de Quebec that they have a cold case unit where they beefed up its uh, officers to twenty five is is the right thing to do. I think the the wrong thing to do would be to have another public inquiry into. Uh, mistakes and then possible interventions and solutions. We already know what the mistakes are. Everyone knows them. We've known them for 40 years. Uh, adding officers is is the right outcome. And uh, thank God they've at least they've at least gotten that right. I will post uh, photos, as always, um, on our website, TeresaLore.com, of these banners of these victims. So you can get the full impact um, of where have I seen this before? Um, uh, in, the, you know, in the case of Jalil, it's, it's heartbreaking. When you look at the geography, I looked at a map to sort of see, to see where she lived and where she was going to her friend's house. And... And and sure enough, if if you if you walk that route by street, it would it it it's about a like a a mile and a third walk. You have to walk around the forest, you know, the circumference of the forest in order to get to the friend's house. But if you walk through the forest, you know, you can do it in about a quarter of a mile. So what what of course we all we all do this. Of course, that's what she's going to do. And um, in uh, as I say, uh, I won't spoil the surprise. Um, Campo's case was solved, um, and um, when we see, we'll read a little bit about her her offender. And when you when when I tell you something of his pattern behavior, you will you will quickly. Um, come to the conclusion that she was stalked, that clearly this offender watched her behavior for a long time. It wasn't just a moment of opportunity. He clearly watched what she was doing. That He watched a lot of women, women, what am I saying, girls, victims, prey, um, in the course of his... Uh, <laughs> I guess am I going to call it a life? Yeah. Anyway, um, the the everyone knew who killed Campo. The mother knew who did it. The police knew who did it. But they just didn't have the evidence to convict him. So they waited twenty years, and then. Something just clicked. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to read to you. It's more efficient for me to do this if I do it if I do it from memory. I'm going to make some mistakes. So and 
This is from the Montreal Gazette to their crime reporter, Paul Cherry. No one's better than Paul. And he he did a series on Kempo. So I'm going to read some excerpts from it that will best tell the story of how they caught Eric uh, Dodelin. So this is from April 12th, 2014. Uh, And it says... um, well, I'll preface it by saying, you know how I kind of mentioned the frustration of in Montreal of like a life in prison is never life. And if you don't keep evidence, you're you're f- screwed because um, no one's going to confess to something if they have the promise of being paroled. So what is the solution um, given that kind of Canadian calculus of criminal justice? Well, well, they had one. And I didn't know this. And it's called a Mr. Big operation. So I'm going to read from, from Paul Cherry here. It was a Mr. Big operation that finally got Eric Daudelin to confess to the murder of nine-year-old Jolil Campo. Paul Cherry breaks down how this rare and dramatic policing tool works. It's a dramatic and controversial policing tool investigators employ as a last resort when they hit dead ends in solving major crimes. Mr. Big operations are elaborate sting operations the RCMP reportedly use, uh, has used a dozen times a year in Canada, Canada to attempt to extract a confession from suspects. The tactic has been weighed by the courts twice in recent months. In March, a judge in Laval had to decide whether a Mr. Big operation would be allowed as evidence in the jury trial of Eric Daudelin who was convicted of the murder, sexual assault, and forcible confinement of nine-year-old Jolil Campo almost two decades earlier. Last December, the Supreme Court of Canada was asked to consider whether such an operation violated the rights of a Newfoundland father convicted of murder in the drowning deaths of his twin daughters. The court could rule at any time on the case of Nelson Hart in a decision expected to address to what extent suspects are under the state's control during a Mr. Big operation. A confession made while a person is detained and under the control of the state is often carefully analyzed by a court to determine if it was made under such a degree of pressure that even an innocent person would have made it. A Mr. Big sting operation is where a police officer oversees and instructs undercover officers with the goal of getting a suspect to talk about a crime and perhaps confess. The start out is a getting to know the subject uh, uh, period and gradually to create the illusion the person is joining a criminal organization willing to pay them well for their services. The person is placed in situations, called scenarios, aimed at gaining their trust. Ultimately, the subject is placed in a situation where they are confronted by the leader of a fictitious organization, a Mr. Big. The leader pretends to have access to details on the long unsolved crime the subject is being investigated for. The subject is then presented with a choice by Mr. Big. Tell him everything about the crime, but if he finds out you are lying, you will be kicked out of the gang. 
The target of the operation is told the gang needs to know everything in order to help him. I mean, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. Who would be stupid enough to... But anyway... It resembles a police interrogation, except that the subject is reminded, often, that they can leave at any point. The operation is usually videotaped. Mr. Big operations have been used over the past two decades and have resulted in several convictions. But as the cover agent in Bill Delan's trial pointed out, they have also helped exonerate innocent people. Delan, 40, was convicted by a jury on March 27th of Jalil's murder. She vanished en route to a friend's house on June 12th, 1995. Her body was discovered submerged in a creek near her home four days after she disappeared. Laval police suspected Dorlin killed Jalil even before her body was found, but had no evidence. In 2009, a biologist re-examined the physical evidence traced and traced Dorlin's DNA on a ski mask discovered 80 meters from where the girl's body was found. Hey, they kept the evidence. <laughs> it's the victoire. <laughs> Finally, the surprise discovery was not enough to have Dorlin charged, but it convinced the RCMP to initiate the Mr. Big operation. Dorlin provided a very detailed description of how he killed the girl during his secretly recorded conversation with Mr. Big. He was arrested and charged in 2001. And then we get, we get a little more detail on this Mr. Big thing. Uh, for three months, from March to June 2011, Dodelin was put through 45 scenarios or interactions to make him believe he was being recruited into a criminal gang. He initially was asked to do simple jobs like loading a truck with appliances and within weeks was convinced he was performing illegal acts like delivering illicit firearms. He was asked to travel all over Quebec and eventually to Nova Scotia and to Vancouver. In June 2011, while the sting operation targeted Dodelin was well underway, the same biologists who found Dodelin's DNA on the ski mask managed to confirm that partial DNA fragments found on Jolil's underwear came from Dodelin's sperm. It is a key difference between the Dodelin case and the one currently before the Supreme Court, which I believe is the Hart case we mentioned at the beginning from Newfoundland. While Dodelin also provided different versions of what happened to Jolil when he confessed, the DNA found on the girl's underwear matched his third and final version of the story. Dodelin's words and his DNA placed him at the crime scene and confirmed the fact that there was a sexual assault. Why did the trial judge in Dodelin's case decide to allow the jury to hear the Mr. Big evidence? And I'll I'll end quickly here. Quebec Superior Court Justice Sophie Bork, the presiding judge in the Dodelin trial, was presented with a defense motion seeking to have the Mr. Big evidence tossed out. 
Daudelin's lawyers, Gilles Daudelin, no relation to the accused, and Jackie Eric Selvin, <laughs> argued that when Daudelin, a unilingual francophone, was brought to Vancouver, it was the equivalent of him being illegally detained and that under pressure was exercised by the state. They also argued that the 45 scenarios Daudelin was put through were, quote, an abuse of procedure and a form of insidious pressure, end quote. Bork rejected the motion before the jury began hearing evidence in the trial. While she has yet to make her detailed written decision public, she stated she did consider the decision made in the Hart case before uh, making her own. I believe the Hart case was tossed because they didn't have physical evidence in the death of the two twins. While the Newfoundland court presented uh, precedent wasn't debated at length before her, Bork said that, notwithstanding, I consider that Mr. Daudelin was not in a state of virtual detention. She also ruled that, ruled that if she had concluded Daudelin was detained, his confession wasn't made under coercion as defined in the past by the Supreme Court of Canada. To conclude a little bit about this Mr. Big um, topic, uh, the Supreme Court, as it says, it makes um, the decision to order a new trial in the case of the Newfoundlander Nelson Hart. And the problem with that is now it opens the door for, for new trials and other Mr. Big cases. So it it makes this tool now very vulnerable. I I mean, I would argue that now that we know about Mr. Big, who would possibly fall for it? But um, maybe maybe that's that's just me. Um, a little more the the uh, the the mother of uh, uh, Jalil uh, Campo, uh, Donna Senecal. She keeps up at this f- f- for twenty years. As we say, and uh, she she publishes a book, um, I think in two two thousand fifteen, um, uh, in uh, translated from French is Jalil, nine years old, forever, the life of a mother of a child who died a violent death, um, um, and uh, she, uh, in an interview, she she claims she she's taking aim at a justice system. Uh, that stole her daughter from her 20, 20 years ago. And when you hear um, the timeline of uh, uh, Daudelin's life, it's, you know, I, I would talk about it, but again, I'm just going to read from, a, uh, a, I believe it's Paul Cherry again. Uh, it's uh, because it's it's really, really good. And it shows you what I believe to be the typical trajectory of a lifelong offender uh, in in Quebec um, so so here it is uh, indulge me here I apologize for reading but um, dark fantasies fuel life of violence punishment 
Police knew Eric Dodelin was dangerous, but lacked tools to protect the public. Now he's charged with killing a nine-year-old girl. As a teenager, Eric Dodelin asked for help to control his violent fantasies. Gradually, his fantasies won. Eventually, police became convinced he would kill, and he was placed under constant surveillance, an examination of his court records show. The 37-year-old Dodelin remains behind bars after his arrest a month ago in the death of Jolie Campeau, a nine-year-old Laval girl who was sexually assaulted and killed in 1995. Well before Jalil's death, Dodelin's increasingly disturbing behavior alarmed police, prosecutors, and psychiatrists, who used every legal means at their disposal to protect the public. But changes allowed authorities to place tighter controls on dangerous offenders like Dodelin didn't go into effect until 1997, two years after Jalil was killed. It took police 16 years to arrest Dodelin for Jolie's slaying, but his life became an open book in 1993 when he was about to be sentenced for sexually assaulting two 17-year-old girls in Laval. Sentencing documents describe how he grew up as an only child with parents he admired even though he found them strict. He described himself to a psychiatrist as having growing up timid, lonely, introverted, and often the target of ridicule by his peers because of his weight. To boost his self-esteem, he turned to weightlifting as a teen, but also consumed marijuana and harder drugs on a regular basis. Dodelin dropped out of high school at 16 after having repeated grade 7 and grade 10. He had difficulty learning both English and French and was placed in a special education program after failing grade 7. His mother told psychiatrist Georges Pinard that her son was a problem student. The low point came when he kicked the principal in the leg. The turning point in his life, according to what Dodelin told Pinard in 1993, came at age 17 when, in less than two months, he lost his job at a garage bag factory after an argument with a co-worker and was dumped by his 15-year-old girlfriend because she thought Dodelin was a possessive, jealous stoner. Dodelin told Pinard that the rejections caused him to drink to the point where he could consume up to 24 beers a day and would sometimes black out. It was during this period that he began what would turn out to be a series of attacks on young women. At 17, Dodelin assaulted two young women and sexually assaulted another. He told Pinard he often fantasized about sexually assaulting women, but could control himself when he was sober. But when he drank, Dodelin said, his inhibitions disappeared and his dark impulses became a voice inciting him to attack. He admitted to Pinard that he intended to rape the first woman he sexually assaulted, but he was too drunk and molested her instead. That assault... Those on two other women landed Dodelin in a youth detention center in October 13, 1992. He was released exactly one year later. Then on January 31, 1993, he struck again by committing his first sexual assault as an adult, raping a 17-year-old girl after following her when she got off a Laval bus late at night. 
and I hope you're paying attention to that part. Less than two months later, he used the same method to sexually assault another 17-year-old. He was soon arrested, and he pleaded guilty to attacking both women. While being evaluated for a pre-sentencing report, Daudelin admitted his dark fantasies to Pinard and said he felt his crimes could be attributed to heavy drug use and alcohol use. Mr. Daudelin has made a request for help dealing with his fantasies, Pinard wrote in his evaluation. The psychiatrist considered him to be a good candidate for a program to teach sexual deviance at the Philip Pinel Institute. The program required at least a year of inmate participation. Philip Pinard is an institute. It's way, way in the east end of Montreal, almost at the other tip of the island. Uh, Daudelin was sentenced on May 12, 1993, to a two-year sentence for two sexual assaults involving 17-year-old girls. According to parole records, he followed a therapy program while serving his sentence. In July 1994, he was admitted to at least one psychiatrist that his fantasies were getting more violent, that he was certain he would kill someone if he was released at that point. He was denied parole in September 1994, and was encouraged to keep following therapy. A criminologist believed Daudelin was beginning to make progress. What happened with Daudelin's therapy in the eight months following that parole hearing is not a matter of public record. The, the criminologist, by the way, I believe is a famous criminologist now at the Simon Fraser University named Eric Beauregard. That is my guess. In May 1995, he completed his full sentence. Within six weeks of his release, he sexually assaulted an 18-year-old woman in Laval. Now Daudelin is charged with killing Jalil one month after walking out of the penitentiary. He stopped seeking help following his second arrest as an adult for the sexual assault of the 18-year-old Laval woman. Instead of pleading guilty, as he had done in the past, he opted for a trial and was convicted. He was sentenced to the equivalent of an eight-year prison term, and he refused to take part in therapy while serving all of his time behind bars. I mean, this is this is so familiar. This this recalls the the Gregoire prison tract. I mean, I mean all of it. Um, his behavior toward female penitentiary employees landed him in a solitary confinement, and he threatened to seek revenge on the eighteen-year-old victim. In July 1999, Daudelin refused to be evaluated by a psychologist and renounced his right to take part in a parole hearing in 2000 and in 2001. So you get the feel of this, right? So, so by now, he's, he's continuing on this trajectory. Um, he's murdered uh, Campo, right, in 95, but he's, he's in and out of prison constantly. Days before his sentence came to an end on January 18th, 2002, Daudelin saw conditions imposed on his release through a court-ordered peace bond, a measure not available to authorities for offenders like him in 1995. It is commonly referred to as an 810 agreement in court. Daudelin was considered so dangerous that Montreal police placed him under constant surveillance, looking for any violation of the agreement. It took one day for Daudelin to screw up. He was arrested on January 12, 2002, 
while walking out of a convenience store with a case of 12 beers under his arm and pleaded guilty three days later to violating his parole agreement. His lawyer agreed to a 15-month prison term, which appeared to surprise Georges Maximilien Polak during a hearing at the Montreal courthouse. In general, offenders who violate their peace bonds are sentenced to a month, Polak informed Dodelin. But as prosecutor Pierre Poulain informed the judge, Dodelin was not an average offender. The Crown said authorities with Correctional Service Canada sought the 810 agreement because, quote, the possibility of Dodelin committing another crime or rape homicide is extremely high. And there you have it, the sad saga of Eric Dodelin, now currently serving a life sentence um, for the murder of nine-year-old Jalil Campo. what to make of all this. We began by um, shortly after Liette Gibb, the the murder of Sophie Landry. So of the eight cases, they're kind of bookended, right, with two of them solved. Uh, Landry stabbed 172 times by Guy Cruteau um, and ending with uh, Jalil Campo, um, who died at the hands of uh, Eric Dodelin. Um, and what what to make of, of of all of that? Well, I agree with Melanie Cabet's mother. I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture of one offender with any of these. I believe there are a lot of offenders on on the streets of Quebec, and certainly at this time, um, and they're they're improvising, right? They're 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 learning from each other. They're they're trying things when. That's why I really um, take issue sometimes with a, a hard and fast, the hard and fast rules of uh, offender modus operandi. I, I just don't believe that it's that simple. I think um, circumstances uh, present themselves and the offender improvises within those circumstances. For instance, if. if if you if you can't get it up in your sexual assault because you're too drunk, then you're going to do something else. But don't necessarily mean that, you know, he's the masturbator offender or he's the one that, you know, rapes them offender and that it's all that simple because it's not. And of the the offenders we've talked about, well, who could possibly be responsible for what? Well, and, and just looking at this and doing the math with their ages and when they were in and out of prison. So Luke Gregoire can, cannot be responsible for anything after 1982 because he's firmly locked up in Archambault. Um, so he's not responsible for anything from 87 to 90, uh, 95, but, but certainly a prime suspect for the 70s murders. Claude LaRouche. Well, Claude could be responsible for absolutely everything, um, practically. Um, 
not the early 70s cases. I mean, 1980, he's 18. So 78, 16, that's a little young, but um, certainly he can be responsible for the, the, the 80s and 90s cases. Uh, Daudelin, no, he's he's too young. Um, only the '90s cases, and then only within the the labyrinth timeline of him in and out of incarceration that just kind of makes your head dizzy. And then finally, Guy Cruteau, who stabbed Landry, uh, absolutely everything uh, from the '80s and '90s. I mean, he wasn't caught till 2002, so he's he's certainly a prime suspect in all of this. We'll end where we began and with a coda. On Saturday, December 11th, 1999, the La Presse reports on eight cases that were at that time unsolved in the Montreal region. Now, this story appears on a Saturday on page three of the paper above the fold. Now, what was the point in reporting this this story uh, at that time? Well, if you go below the fold of page three, there is a complimentary story on Julie Seprena, who by December 11th had been missing for uh, a month. Suprana disappeared from Terrebonne, Quebec, on November 15th, 1999. And again, uh, within that month, it was a four-alarm blaze. The, the, the Sarté de Quebec went all out on trying to find this um, 16-year-old girl. They publish a photo of Suprana, and next to it there's a uh, artist rendering of a, a suspect who was seen at the bus stop when she got off the bus near her home in Terrebonne on November 15th. There's a gentleman in a, a baseball cap potentially with like a scarf or balaclava over his, his mouth area. So these things continue. So next time we'll continue. We'll go a little bit more in depth. We I know we've touched on Suprano, but we've never really... Um, taken a deep look at that case uh, so next time we'll have a, a look at that case in, uh, in greater detail uh, and discuss some other cases that came from the fallout of her disappearance 
This has been Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. If you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or any other platforms we use, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I don't know, wherever you listen to it. Um, You can follow us on uh, social media, on Twitter. I'm at JusticeGuy, J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. There's also a separate... um, handle for the podcast at Teresa Lore at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E follow us on Facebook at Who Killed Teresa the podcast you can find us there Um, and as I say um, I will post visual information anything that was visually related in this podcast, I'll post on the website, uh, TeresaLore.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and have yourselves a great, great afternoon.
Hey, Tom. I'm heading to Walmart, because you know what season it is. Oh, is it pumpkin spice season? Uh, no, it's flu season, and Walmart gives flu shots. Yes, flu season is here, and we've got your back with flu shots where you already shop. Our expert pharmacy team administers each flu shot and can answer your vaccine questions. Stay safe this flu season. Stop by your local Walmart pharmacy and get your flu shot today. Across the country, hate crimes are on the rise by more than 25% in the last five years. The good news is there's something you can do about it right here in your community. If you witness or experience a hate crime, you're not alone. And the FBI is here to help and commit it to justice. Report hate crimes at 1-800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes.